Good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. It's great to see you all looking back at me today. I'm so thankful this is your first time here today. Welcome to First Baptist Church. I hope you've been greeted warmly today. Uh, I found this to be a very warm and welcoming congregation, so we're so glad you came to worship with us. Have you ever been disappointed on your birthday? Go ahead and throw that hand up, even if your parents are sitting right beside you. It's okay. It's okay. We're in church. Yeah, okay. You've been disappointed. You've experienced disappointment. I remember the very first time I experienced disappointment on a birthday. I had an aunt, Aunt Jo. You'll hear me talking about her from time to time. And Aunt Jo didn't have any kids of her own. So what Aunt Jo did was she spoiled her nieces and her nephews. So we were always very happy and excited when we got that present on our birthday from Aunt Jo. And I remember sitting on the back patio. It was my eighth birthday. And I get that box from Aunt Jo. Who knows what kind of goodness would be in there. I open it up, and there's an envelope. And to be honest, immediately a, a question mark went up in my mind as to how good Aunt Joe's gift was going to be this year. And I opened up the envelope, and what was inside but these U.S. Treasury bonds. I mean, I'm looking at these things. It's not quite money. It, they're not, it's not green. Well, well what, what the heck, Aunt Joe? So I, I remember opening those up and just being totally disappointed. And even later that evening, I remember kind of taking the envelope and I was sort of like throwing it around like a Frisbee. I had no idea what these things were or what they were for. Well, see, my parents saw me kind of throwing these things around. So the, a couple of three weeks later, I noticed, oh, well, those bonds, I wonder where they went. I didn't know. Well, it turns out my parents saw what I was doing, so they took them and they put them in a safety deposit box. And they said, Chad, you were just throwing those things around like a Frisbee. And I said, well, so what? <clears throat> it's making my voice squeaky. <laughs> so what? <laughs> I didn't even know what they were for. Now, it's funny. This, this past weekend, I went and checked online. So this was like 1983. And they've like doubled to tripled in value, these, these treasury bonds that Aunt Joe had got for me. Now, as a child, I had no idea that these things had any value at all. But fortunately, some adult in my life saw how I was acting towards these things. They had the wherewithal to say, you know what, I'm going to take these away from you because you have no idea the value that they have. Oftentimes, we will relinquish something to someone if we believe they can better handle it than we can. We do this with our money, right? We'll put it in a bank. We'll give it to an investor if they think they can grow it or do something better with it. We do it with our health. We'll entrust our health to a doctor. We believe that they can best tell us how to live. Same thing with a trainer. If we think we can have a more productive life or have a stronger body, if we entrust someone with this, then we'll do it. Then there's this other part of ourselves. See, things can be hard to let go of. And what about that most basic part of ourselves? Some refer to it as the heart, or you could call it the will. It's that part of us that we use to make everyday decisions on what we're going to do with ourselves in any particular moment. There's a Puritan pastor by the name of John Owen, and he actually made it a big part of his life studying what he called our spiritual affections. 
And about that, he says this, the spiritual affections, that part of us from where we make our decisions. He says this, the great contest of heaven and earth is about the affections of the poor worm which we call man. That the holy God should, as it were, engage in the contest and strive for the affections of man is an effect of infinite condescension and grace. This he doth expressly, saying that in the old English, my son saith he, give me thine heart. Can we entrust that deepest and most basic part of ourselves to God? And that's the subject I want to talk about this morning. How do we surrender our wills to God? How do we surrender our wills to God? The passage I want to look at today comes again from the book of Hebrews. This morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 5. And I want to look at verses 1 through 10. There we see the great relinquishment of a will. It's the will of Christ himself. Let's stand together as we, as we read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. So we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. This book that is focusing on the human response to God, belief. And there's this clear theme, don't stop believing. In the passage today, we see again Christ as a high priest, surrendering and relinquishing his will to the Father. I want to go through this, three points. Good sermon always has three points. First of all, human high priests had their strengths. We'll see that. As, as superior as Christ is to any human priest, the human priests had their good points. Then secondly, we'll see that Christ followed the path to priesthood, and it was not an easy journey. It was an appointment, and as you said, in, as, as you heard in that passage, some very kind of challenging sections, he was made perfect. What does that mean? And then finally, how do I surrender my will to God? How do I surrender my will to God? We'll, we'll stop there looking at ways that we can participate in this lifelong process. So we see, first of all, that human high priests had their strengths. Human high priests had their strengths. Um, these priests were in a very unique position. It was a high honor to get to do what it was they did. But with that came a lot of humility. They had to deal humbly with God and humbly with people. And we see that 
first section of Hebrews, we see these four characteristics of the high priest spelled out there. And we see the first one, that first of all, he came from the people. The high priest came from the people. Um, We see at the beginning of verse 1, it says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act is appointed to act on behalf of men. Now this is important because it meant he had solidarity with the people. Now, let me see if I can illustrate this in a way I think makes a little more sense. Again, we're, we're going back and we're, we're looking at these sections of the Old Testament that the modern audience, when I say modern, it was those first recipients of the book of Hebrews, they had all this background knowledge. I remember sitting in a class one time in seminary and the professor said, Four score and now see we all know what that means but in that same classroom there were a lot of international students from from all over the world and we said and seven years ago they did they had no idea what we were saying it was it would have been the same way now we're peeking in this conversation that the author of hebrews was having uh, with his original audience so we got to get this background information we see these characteristics of the high priest he was a man of the people so think about that in terms of politics. When we elect a representative to, to represent the great state of Wyoming, to go to Washington, D.C., is it important to us that this is a man of the people? Is it important to us that he understands the issues that Wyomingites are facing? Is it important to us that as he's crafting legislation and voting on legislation, that he understands what the issues are? Yeah, definitely. Do we also want to know that he's going to feel the pain if he, makes a, or he or she makes a decision in Washington and has to come back here and live with it? See, that was this high priest. He was a man of the people. If he screwed up representing the people of Israel, he was going to feel it too. So he had this solidarity with the people. He was appointed from among the people. And then secondly, he accessed God. He accessed God. We talked about that a bit last week on on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He'd enter into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, and he'd offer a sacrifice. Uh, He had this unique access to God that the rest of the people didn't have. That was, um, that's in uh, the first verse as well there. By the way, when he went into this Holy of Holies, he would take, or or into the the temple area, he would take uh, two goats and a ram. One goat he would sacrifice. And then the other goat was called a scapegoat. And he would lay his hand on that scapegoat, and he would, he would place, figuratively speaking, symbolically, he would place the sins of Israel on that scapegoat, and then he would send it out into the desert, as if to say, uh, God has forgiven your sins, Israel. He's removing them from you. Symbolically, we're placing it on this goat, and we're sending it out into the desert. So that's what he did on this Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So he, he accessed God. Then third, this is an interesting one, his weakness enabled gentleness. His weakness enabled gentleness. Uh, there in verses 2 and 3, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. It's sort of a backhanded compliment Priest, since you're ignorant like the people, you'll understand them better. They're wayward. The the Israelites didn't always realize the sins they were committing. And they acted in ignorance, and that made them wayward. And the priest was just as guilty at times. 
So he could relate to the Israelites in that way. He'd be gentle with them. Boy, that's an important attitude to have, by the way. And then finally, God appointed him. God appointed him. This comes from verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron was the first high priest, and he was appointed by God. This was not an election. Uh, this was not a position you could try to take by force. Only God could appoint you to this position. And it came with a lot of responsibility. If you read uh, through the book of Leviticus, as a matter of fact, if you look at the appointment um, of Aaron, uh, you'll see that there were two men who did not fall in line with God's ceremony of appointment, and they were incinerated on the spot. So this was a very, with great privilege comes great responsibility. As a matter of fact, you could sum up what Moses said about this position to say those who have the privilege of being nearest to God must bear special responsibility to exemplify His holiness and glory. Do you know that we've been given a privilege? We've been given the privilege of making Christ known to this generation. And do you know that when we share the gospel with people, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. We are no better. We are all sinners saved by grace. So we need to have that same attitude of humility that these, these priests had to have in dealing with people and in dealing with God. So... These were good points of the high priest. They dealt humbly with God and dealt humbly with people. And then we see this next point, that Christ followed the path to priesthood. Christ followed the path to priesthood. And the statements that were made about Christ are going to mirror the second half of this section. These verses made about Christ, these statements made about Christ, mirror what was said about the high priest. So in verse 4, we saw the appointment of the high priest. In verses 5 and 6, we see the appointment of the new high priest. Uh, it says there, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son. It's from Psalm 2. Today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So two Old Testament quotes. That first psalm pairs up Christ as a heir of David. He's a distant grandson of King David. He's in the line, this kingly line. And then it says he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Oh, what in the world is that talking about? I mean, who's this guy? Why does this matter? Melchizedek was a very interesting guy. If you go back to the book of Genesis, there's a lot of mystery around this, this guy named Melchizedek who kind of comes out of nowhere. And his name literally means king of righteousness. He was a king priest. He filled two roles. This is the similarity that Christ has with Melchizedek. He's both a king and he is a priest. That's what this verse is talking about. So he carries on both those roles, both those responsibilities. We'll actually see a lot more about Melchizedek in chapter 7 that will be in, in a few weeks. But what's clear from verses 5 and 6 is that Christ was appointed as a high priest. and He was also superior than any earthly priest high priest that came along. So we see this appointment. Then we see this painful path to priesthood in verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So you see the weakness of the old high priest in verses 2 and 3. Now you see the suffering of Christ. This is a reference, by the way, to the prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Crying out to God. Even though he was fully God himself, he was feeling and enduring all of these painful human emotions as being uh, the recipient. You, know, you, you saw that scapegoat that I talked about, that the high priest used, putting all that sin on the scapegoat. Jesus took all of those sins on himself. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he started to bear those sins. And then we see these other two phrases. In verse 8, he said, although he was a son, he learned. Well, wait a minute. If God knows everything, how is it that he learned? And then secondly, um, how is it he's being made perfect if he's already perfect? Well, referring first of all to that son part. You know, typically a priest, or I'm sorry, a prince who was the son of a king would get his kingship just sort of bequeathed to him. He didn't have to fight for it. It was just given to him. But even though Jesus was a son of the king, he still had to suffer in order to receive what it was that had been appointed to him. In that sense, he learned. He experienced something that he had not yet experienced. And then the second part, being made perfect. We talked about this a little before. This is being made perfect in the sense of completing the mission the Father had given him. That was the sense in which he was made perfect in completion of this mission to go to the cross. The mission that ultimately made him the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Uh, whenever Christ was dealing with the people, his disciples in Mark 8, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In that sense, we are called to obey Christ. It's part of discipleship. It's part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, when, when they would take up their cross, when, it, when the person was convicted, they would take up that cross, they'd have to carry that cross around Rome as one final act to say, you know what? Rome was right, and I was wrong. In Jesus' case, he, he took that cross around Jerusalem as, as one final stab at him. The city was making him do that. Rome was making him do that as, as a pronouncement to say, Rome was right, and I was wrong. Jesus says, take up your cross to say that I'm forsaking my own way, and I'm doing it God's way. That's what that means. So now we come back to this question of surrender. How do I surrender my will to God? How do I surrender my will to God? And we've got to understand this is a lifetime process. But it's a process that we, we participate in fully as we seek to surrender ourselves to God. Um, and so three, uh, three ways to do this. First of all, question your motives. Question your motives. Why do I do what I do? You know, the modern approach to God is different than any way in the past. It started with, with modernism. Modern man decided that he would follow God if God could answer his questions suitably. It wasn't always like that. As a matter of fact, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book or an essay called God in the Dock. The Dock was the place in a courtroom where the person who was accused would sit and answer the questions of the judge. And this, book, this essay was called God in the Dock. 
And C.S. Lewis says it this way, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Now, man considers himself a very kind judge. And C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, this is the modern way of approaching God. If he can answer my questions, if he can come up with a reasonable defense for the charges I'm bringing against him, is this how we are to approach God? The high priest of the Old Covenant was appointed by God. Christ was appointed by God. Are we willing to accept him as our high priest simply for the fact that he was by divine decree put in that role? Do you see the difference? What is motivating us? Or do we continue to doubt God because he's not sufficiently answering our questions as we put him in the place of the accused? So question your motives. Secondly, assess your childishness, our childishness. What do I mean by that? My wife and I are currently parenting a three-year-old. And uh, this, this young man has a will. He wants to do it his way. So we're constantly in this struggle, authoritatively sometimes, we're having to make him sometimes painfully submit to our will. But then he wants to do good things too. And we want to encourage that. So we get caught in this, this battle of the wills at times. It happens to us as we grow spiritually as well. And just as a child has to relinquish their will to grow to maturity, so must we as children of God submit our wills to his. There's a, a book called Finding the Heart's True Home. Uh, it's about prayer, written by Richard Foster. And he says in that book, he compares human and spiritual development. He says, as we are learning to pray, we discover an interesting progression. In the beginning, our will is in struggle with God's will. We beg, we pout, we demand. We expect God to perform like a magician or shower us with blessings like Father Christmas. We major in instant solutions and manipulative prayers. And then he goes on to say, as difficult as this time of struggle is, we must never despise it or try to avoid it. It is an essential part of our growing and deepening in things spiritual. To be sure, it is an inferior stage, but only in the sense that child is at an inferior stage to that of an adult. <clears throat> Excuse me. The adult can reason better and carry heavier, heavier loads because both brain and brawn are more, more fully developed. But the child is doing exactly what we would expect at that age, so it is in the life of the Spirit. So we have to, we, we got to realize we're coming out of a childish place. We don't want to stay there, but we're growing out of it. You know, this prayer that Christ prayed in Gethsemane, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Who wants to suffer? But then how does he close that prayer? Not my will, but yours be done. You know, for me, an airplane can be an experiment of faith. When I get on a plane, my prayer is, Lord, let every plane land safely today. 
but not my will, but yours be done. That is a prayer of relinquishment. Make your request known to God. God, not my will, but yours be done. And then finally, move beyond your emotions. Move beyond your emotions. See, we all have feelings, but the problem is sometimes we can mistake these as, uh, as like divine directives for something. Uh, I remember for a long time I didn't feel saved, so I really questioned my own salvation. Well, the truth is emotions can be incredibly misleading. And John Piper has said some wonderful things addressing this issue of emotions. He says, God designed your emotions to be gauges, not guides. They're meant to report to you, not dictate you, the pattern of your emotions. Not every caffeine-induced or sleep-deprived one will give you a reading on where your hope is because they are wired into what you believe and value and how much. Then he goes on to say, but because our emotions are wired into our fallen natures, as well, into our, as well as into our regenerated nature, sin and Satan have access to them and will use them to try and manipulate us to act faithlessly. I love what he says, they're gauges, not guides. You know, whenever I'm looking at my dashboard, I've got a gas gauge. It tells me how much gas is in the tank. But I should never confuse my gas gauge with the GPS. You see, the GPS is telling me where I need to go. Our emotions are like these gauges that you, you may need to address something. Why am I angry? As a matter of fact, addressing those emotions could reveal some underlying sin in your life. But don't let them be your ultimate guide. We need a GPS, God's positioning system. We need the Word of God. We need godly counsel. Pay attention to your emotions. We need them, but they can lead us astray. So putting all this together, surrender your motives, maturity, and emotions to God. Surrender these things to God. I want to close, uh, you may or may not have heard the name Kayla Mueller. Kayla Mueller was um, a young woman. She was taken prisoner by ISIS. She was a, a Christian lady. And right before she died, she wrote a letter to her family. And she said this, I remember mom always telling me that all in all, in the end, the only one you really have is God. I have come to a place and experience where in every sense of the word, I have surrendered myself to our creator because literally there was no one else. And by God and by your prayers, I have felt tenderly cradled in freefall. I have been shown in darkness, light, and have learned that even in prison, one can be free. She says, I am grateful. If you want total freedom in this life, then totally surrender everything to God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd now prepare our hearts to go into this time of communion. I pray, God, that we would see you in a special way this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we would be about the business of completely surrendering our will to yours. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.